as always. It is a real privilege and a joy for me personally to return to Spring Meadow Baptist Church. And you know, I used to joke about the fact that uh, every time I showed up, your pastor was gone. And uh, But then one time he... Uh, uh, decided to uh, allow me to come when he was here, and my wife and I enjoyed that time so much, uh, visiting with your pastor and his wife in their home and getting to know them face-to-face -face on a personal basis. But uh, he's back to his old tricks, and he's run away and said, will you come and, and stand in my place? But what a great thing for your church, Spring Baptist Church, to take this opportunity and uh, send him and uh, Mrs. Schwanke, along with Brother and Mrs. Amstead and the other folks uh, to visit the missionaries you support here at Spring Meadow Baptist Church. I, I warn you, they're going to come back changed forever. And they're going to be like uh, exploding fireworks of all that they want to share with you. And, and can I give you a heads up? Open your heart because their hearts are going to be full. And uh, it's just normal. And um, they are making a tremendous investment. And I must just say also with regard to you folks who have stayed behind to be faithful. You know, if I were a visitor coming here for the first time today, I wouldn't even know anything's different. Everything's been done so smoothly, whether that's uh, leading the music or accompanying and uh, conducting the service. Uh, if I was your pastor... I'd be very pleased and impressed with how you folks serve in their absence. So I commend you highly. I want to ask you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the New Testament. I'm going to share with you a message from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So if you'd like to turn there to Luke chapter 10, I want to share a few of the verses by way of reading. Before we get into the message this morning, out of the text, I'm going to be with you. Luke chapter 10, and uh, by way of introduction, I want to just read uh, verses 30 to 33. Luke chapter 10, if you found your place, please follow along as I read verses 30 right down to verse 33 here in Luke chapter 10. All right, the Bible says in Luke 10, verse 30, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, I want to challenge all of us with a message I'm entitling, The Master and the Message. The Master and the Message of Compassion. Let's bow in prayer before we get into the message this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we need to pause and just look at our own life. 
to see how we compare to this very familiar Samaritan. Oh God, would we, would I be as sacrificial, as loving, as willing to do as he did on that old road that day? Lord, what would it mean to you if I lived like that? I pray you'll open our hearts this morning. I pray you'll challenge us anew and afresh with something that may be routine and very familiar to most who are gathered. Open our eyes to the meaning of this text. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, here we find a study on the subject of compassion. And many consider Jesus' well-known parable to be the very one I've just read, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But let me ask you this morning by way of introduction, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being low, 10 being high, how would you measure your level of compassion. Hmm? Our goal in this message is to develop a baseline for our level of compassion. We want to see how we measure up in this area of compassion. Let me begin by telling an old story. I don't know if it's true. I, I presume it is. But there's a story told about a seminary a number of years ago that was conducting a study among its preacher boys, and it went like this. One of the professors in that seminary assigned his young group of preacher boys an assignment, and that assignment was to prepare a message on this text, the parable of the Good Samaritan, for a radio broadcast. Without their knowing, however, this professor made arrangements with a stuntman. And the stuntman was to come in on the day the preaching was to take place. And on the pathway from the main building to the radio station where the taping was being done, he was to fake a heart attack one at a time as these students were coming, making their way to make their presentation. And you know what happened? Apparently, each one of these preacher boys, when it was their time slot to come to the radio station, saw this guy fall over on the, on the sidewalk there, and you know what they did? They just went right around him in order to reach the radio station to perform immediately on time. And they were going to preach on the Good Samaritan? We can only guess what their baseline of compassion was on that particular day. Now, unless you look at me, and think I am the preeminent example of compassion, I want to dispel all of your uh, preconceived notions because I have not arrived. I, I vividly recall, and uh, Mary doesn't know that I'm going to say this, but there was an incident that happened at the latter half of our first term on the field. We were missionaries in Singapore for 18 years, and our first term ran about five. And so this was in about 1992. Back then, we only had three children, not eight. 
and uh, their ages of the three were four and three and, and one, the one being my son Daniel. So at that time, we lived in a condominium, and we only had one neighbor across the hall from us. It just so happened that it was a married couple, and uh, it was an American lady by the name of Peggy. She was a high-flying businesswoman and an executive, and um, she was married to an Indonesian, and his name was Jay. So Peggy and Jay lived across the hall. Although Peggy was a high-flying business executive, Jay was jobless. He was a heroin user. Let me just say he attracted a crowd of undesirables that left me very uncomfortable as a young man with three small children. You see, I can remember vividly every morning getting up to leave for the church, our home, and without fail, it seemed like every morning when I'd step out my door, on the ground outside of Peggy and Jay's door, would be an empty bottle of whiskey from the night before, and uh, Peggy was just an alcoholic. There's no two ways about it. But this one day, my whole family's going out, getting into our church van, and as we're getting in, settled, my wife looks out the windshield, and she says, oh, look, there's, there's Jay and Peggy. They must be going out too. And after I made some snide remark about their questionable character. I heard Mary's very stern rebuke, something to this effect, oh, some tender-hearted compassion you are, Pat. Tender-hearted missionary you are, Pat. And you know, God really did convict my heart that day. I, I saw myself for what I really was. I think you could say I recognized my own baseline of compassion. So let me ask you, if, if I were to just say, hey, come on, give me the gist of what this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, means, you might suggest, well, Brother Pat, it's about tender-hearted compassion from one person to another. And you're exactly right. That would be a reasonable explanation of this text if the text was just verse 30 to 35, most of which I've just read. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, every text is set within a context. And the context of this parable includes backing up to verse 25. So let's read that. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, what I'm trying to share with you this morning is the parable of the Good Samaritan is set within a context of evangelism. Because this parable is about earning eternal life. So the context is evangelistic. And I want us to have that in mind as we consider the message. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an occasion for questions, and there are three of them. I want us to look at each of these three questions individually. Let's start with question number one in verse 25. I've just read it. I'll read it again. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know where you're at this morning in terms of this question. If the question even crosses your brow, 
but it needs to cross all of our brows. Where am I going when I die? This question was asked by, the Bible says, a lawyer. Now that's not an attorney that you and I imagine in our court system, in our contemporary world today. In this case, that term lawyer, here used in our New Testament, refers to someone who was a Bible scholar. This was a religious leader, and he was an expert in the study of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. You'll notice that the verse says he tempted Jesus with his question. What does that mean? Well, that word tempted indicates to us that this lawyer was not sincere in asking his question. He was merely feigning respect. He recognized that Jesus was coming at spiritual things and theology from a different perspective than he owned. And so he borrowed some of Jesus' terminology, the reference to eternal life, in order to compare with Judaism Christ's teaching. And this lawyer wanted to know the bottom line for Jesus' belief system. So he Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Question number one. Question number two is in the next verse. Verse 26. And he said unto him, this is Jesus now answering with a question. What is written in the law? How readest thou? How do you read it? You know, it's fascinating that Jesus, rather than giving a straightforward answer, really responds with a question. And we've got to remember something here that the ultimate authority on the subject of the law is the ultimate author, and that's God himself. And therefore, Jesus isn't going to be intimidated by this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, Jesus knew the pride of these lawyers. He knew the pride with which they came and engaged their audiences. Let me show you that. Would you, will, would you be willing to turn in your Bible to Matthew? Let's go back to the first book of the New Testament. Look toward the end of that book, Matthew 23. And I want to look at the first several verses. We want to keep our place in Luke 10, but for now, just consider with me Matthew chapter 23. And I want to expose the mindset and the behavior of these lawyers, Pharisees and scribes. Matthew chapter 23, notice verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. And then Jesus spake to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, notice this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean? These scribes and the Pharisees put themselves in Moses' place. And now what we have is this lawyer coming to Jesus and he's coming in the authority of Moses. Now read verse 3. All whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. In that verse, essentially, Jesus is telling his disciples, these scribes and Pharisees, they're telling you one thing. They're saying one thing, but they're doing another. Now, let's go back. We'll, we'll come back here to Matthew 23, but let's go to Luke 10, and I want to read verse 27. Luke 10, verse 27. 
And he answering said, this is the scribe, or excuse me, this is the lawyer responding to Jesus about what he finds in the law. And he, and he answering said, the law says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, where did he get that? Remember, this is a lawyer. This is an, an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament. And he took this from Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 5, notoriously known as the Shema, where the Bible says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And then he added on to that, Leviticus chapter 19, the end of verse 18, where the Bible says, But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. All right? Let's read verse 28. And he said unto him, this is Jesus answering that lawyer, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. In this verse, Jesus commended the lawyer. You've got the scriptures down, you're correct. But then he offered him the challenge. And that challenge also comes from scripture. Jesus here is quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5, where it says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. It's the idea of living eternally. In other words, you want eternal life? Jesus is saying to the, to the lawyer, you want eternal life? You know the law. It's as simple as this. Love God perfectly, first of all, start there. Love God perfectly. And then secondly, just love your neighbor as yourself and do that and you'll have eternal life. Simple, right? Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've got it. You'll be in heaven for eternity. But there's a twist. Question number three. The lawyer is starting to become incredibly uncomfortable. We have reached that point where the lawyer's anxiety is now at a fevered pitch. And he realizes two things, just like you and me. First of all, I don't love God perfectly. In fact, I, 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 I can't love God perfectly. And as I think about it, I can't love anyone else perfectly either. You see, here was a guy who came with a motive to trap, to condemn Jesus, and he only ended up being condemned himself. But rather than respond to brokenness, what do I do now? Rather than respond in a contrite spirit, call out for mercy, According to verse 29, he does what the lawyers you and I think of tend to do in this world. Verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, uh, and who's my neighbor? Oh, my. He does what good lawyers do, doesn't he? He looks for a technicality in the law. 
And he turns to Jesus, and in that verse, he asks, let's see, can you please define for me what you mean by this term neighbor? Now let's get into the parable itself. This is an old story. It's familiar ground, but it's worth replowing, let's say. We've come now to the classic part of the text. And as I said earlier, the following story, which is told by Jesus, for evangelistic purposes. You might think it's a story just about having tender-hearted, sacrificial behavior toward a person in need, but it's much more profound than that, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is seeking to literally shatter the pride of a man who's basically very self-righteous. This lawyer stood in the face of Jesus and said, look, I'm a good person. He would have thought like most people today, look, I haven't done anything bad to deserve hell. I haven't killed anybody. So consider with me this parable in light of the trip, the trouble, the test, and the tribute. Let's start with the trip, the beginning of verse 30. And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, obviously. But the text says he went down. What is this, what is this getting to? Well, it's trying to help us understand what this journey was really like. You see, they went down. How far down? 4,000 feet down. It's a 4,000 feet drop over the course of 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what is that journey like? Well, imagine a bus ride pitched on a single lane along the side of a very sheer cliff with no guardrails and a 500 feet drop-off when you look out the windows of the bus below into scraggly brush and jagged rock. I've been in situations like that, especially out in the west. I think of the Rocky Mountains when you get up above the tree line. I'm telling you, this was a dangerous place. I've been in places like this in third world countries in Southeast Asia and uh, hanging on for dear life. This was quite a trip. But let's look at the end of the verse. And on that journey, he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. You know, as if the conditions of the trip were not enough, this man was eventually robbed. They stripped him naked. They pummeled him within an inch of his life, and they left him for dead. Now that's the trouble. So we've considered the trip, the trouble. Now look at the test. And as we look at this test, I want us to see two failures followed by a very unlikely winner. All right? First of all, in this test, failure number one is recorded for us in verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Let me give you some background on this priest. First of all, we begin with the fact he was a servant of God. All right? He offered sacrifices within the temple. He would have been the godliest, the most righteous personification of virtue in his time. He would have been an authority in the Old Testament law. 
Therefore, he would have strived to live the truth we find in the Old Testament, recorded for us in the book of Micah, the minor prophet, chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed the old man what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That was the priest. So maybe you would expect the priest to be the very first one to go and offer compassion toward this victim who's been left half dead. But this priest had no love, no mercy for this victim whatsoever. He was an accurate reflection of the rest of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus identified for us in the book of Matthew chapter 23. And I want to read for us now verse 4, because we didn't read that earlier in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, the Bible says, For they, referring to these scribes and Pharisees, bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. This priest looked the part, but he didn't act it. He didn't follow through. Failure number one. Failure number two, we continue in our text, 10 verse 32. And likewise the Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now let me give you some background on the Levite like I did with the priest. The Levites obviously come from the tribe of Levi. All right, that's a given. But they were among the lowest rung of the ladder in priestly service. They were the assistants to the priests. So how did the Levite respond? Well, at least they were consistent, amen. If you've seen one, you've seen another. So if you were looking for compassion among the priests and the Levites of that day or the religious order of that day, there was no compassion to be found. And so like the priest, the Levite did not have his act together. Failure number two. So we've considered the priest, failure number one, the Levite, failure number two, but it's time for us to consider a most unlikely winner. And that's Verses 33 to 35. Let's read it in its context. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. Now let me give you some background on this Samaritan. This involves some Bible history. When the Assyrians defeated Israel, now remember, this is the Babylonian captivity, okay? So the Assyrians defeated Israel, they dispersed the Israelites of the northern kingdom among the Gentile nations. They were scattered abroad. Consequently, intermarriage took place over time. And the result was a half-breed race of half-Jew, half-Gentile people 
throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. The Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah, they remained pure after the Babylonians' captivity, and they despised the Samaritans to the north. And eventually those Samaritans, they built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. The Jews who hated them destroyed that temple 128 years before Christ's birth. So, when the Jews traveled between the north and the south, they avoided Samaria like the plague. That wasn't unless you were Jesus Christ. You and I remember when he met the woman at the well. He said this in John 4, 4. He must needs go through Samaria. But you know what? If you really wanted to demean someone in that day and age, what did you, what did you call them? You called them a demon-possessed Samaritan. And do you know that's exactly what the Jews called Jesus? John 8, 48. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Speaking of Jesus and to Jesus. I want you to consider with me finally the tribute. I ask you a question. What distinguished the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite? The Bible tells us. There in verse 33, the end of the verse, five words. He had compassion on him. What is compassion? The dictionary defines it this way. Quote, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the victim's suffering. Now, the Greek word for compassion, because we get our English word from our, with, from our translation, it comes from the Greek language, and the Greek word here is splognismai. What is splognismai? Well, it means to be moved from the bowel. And in Jewish thought, the bowels were considered the seat of one's emotions, all of your love, all of your pity, all of your mercy. They were all down deep inside of you. And in this story, the Samaritan's eye affected his bowels. He was moved with a burden to act on behalf of this victim. You know, this brings me to two conclusions. You know what compassion is not about? It's not about your religion, my friend. You know, serving the Lord all these years, people ask, what's your religion? My friend, that's an irrelevant question. In our text, we find two men a priest as well as a Levite, although religious, they're loveless. One man, the Samaritan, despised and rejected among the common people of his day, very loving. The priest and the Levite were also the religious crowd, but they were loveless. On the other hand, the man who was loving, he was considered a heretic and an outcast. 
Therefore, the issue of loving is not a matter of one's religion. So if it's not about religion, what's it about? It's about compassion. You've got to notice the extent of the Samaritan's compassion because it's really overwhelming. In verse 34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine and set him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Let me go through this point by point. First of all, the Samaritan went to him. What a contrast to the priest and Levite who didn't go anywhere, especially approach the victim. Secondly, he bound up his wounds. What do we get from that? He basically performed the work of an EMT. He observed, he diagnosed, he prescribed on the spot. He probably started tearing apart his own clothing in order to prepare tourniquets, bandages, stem the flow of blood, skillfully using oil and wine as, in order to prevent any type of infection that might set in. Then he sacrificed his own transportation, the donkey. At least we assume it's a donkey. That meant that he was going to be walking alongside the donkey instead of riding himself. And then he sought shelter for the victim. In this case, it was an inn. And there was obviously room this time around. And these inns, I'll be honest with you, they attracted the undesirables of the day. But at least he was going to get this man out of the weather. But then he was going to go a step incredibly far. He provided for an extended stay. How much? Well, in verse 35, we read the next day. And on the morrow, the next day, when he departed, he took out two pence. How much was that in Jesus' day? Some people say that a night's stay in an inn like this would cost between one thirty-second of a pence. Others say it's one twelfth of a pence. But either way, the Samaritan offered two pence, and that was between one and two months' stay in that inn. You know, my friend, it was never a matter of identity. What do I mean? The Samaritan had a heart full to burst of love. And when he reached this victim, there was never a question of, does he qualify for my attention or not? The only issue was, how can I love a man to the full extent of his need? Friend or foe? That never crossed his mind. This brings me to a time of reflection as well as application. Here's my question to you. Are you the Samaritan? What do you mean? Here's what I mean. Have you ever done just what was described in this story for anybody? Believe it or not, there is someone you have done this for. And that person is you. Say, what? Let me explain. We are very good at making sure we get the best possible treatment available for ourselves. We take care of ourselves, don't we? I mean, you and I might seek to sacrifice greatly for our children, our grandchildren. We might make sure that we've got things set aside for our retirement. But we're dealing here with a total stranger. 
And so the issue is, ladies and gentlemen, throughout your whole life, have you ever loved strangers like the Samaritan did in the story? And the answer is, obviously not. Come on. When's the last time you found someone totally a homeless person and provided them two months lodging, scot-free, meals provided? Is that you? That's not me. So who qualifies for God's kingdom? Because go back to the setting of the text. This is an evangelistic text. This is what it takes to get to heaven. At least that's what Jesus told the lawyer. So who qualifies for God's kingdom? The point Jesus was making was, here is what it takes all of the time, every day, to earn your way into God's kingdom. So do you measure up? Have you qualified? The point is, nobody qualifies. You say, what do you mean? You can't work your way to heaven. There's no amount of good deeds you can do to qualify for acceptance into God's eternal home. You don't live that way, and you can't start living that way and hope to attain it. So the parable, ladies and gentlemen, is an indictment against the whole human race of our entire religious system. Works will not qualify you for heaven, period. This side of heaven, you can't, you don't, and you will never love like this Samaritan. So I know where you're at, and you're thinking, Brother Pat, if I don't love my neighbor like this, then I don't love God with all my heart either, or with all my soul, or with all my might. You're right. I appreciate your honesty. And if that's what it takes to get to heaven, I can't get there on my own merit. Absolutely. You're correct. You can't. So then, you need a Savior. I need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. There's no amount of good you can do. Thinking that coming to church here today granted you some measure of grace to make you more fit for God's eternal kingdom, it doesn't work that way. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And how did he do that? He came. He stepped out of the portals of glory, lived in a robe of flesh like yours and mine, but without sin, and went to an old rugged cross. And there allowed the Roman soldiers to nail him so that the blood that came from his brow, his feet, and his hands could be offered as a sacrifice. Spotless, perfect, sinless blood as the perfect payment for you and for me. That if I would but place my trust in that sin offering on that cross and believe that Jesus rose again three days later, conquering sin and death and hell, that, by faith alone, would qualify me for entrance into God's kingdom. That, my friend, is the gospel.
the good news. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he rose again. Why? Because I can't save myself. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. This victim was helpless. And he needed fear. You know, my friend, I need a Savior every day. Do you? So what's the bottom line? Jesus is the master of compassion. He displayed it throughout his life, and it was brought to a climax in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And we need to begin today by being an example of that same compassion to a needy world all around us. The master and the message of compassion. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear loving Heavenly Father,